This is the On All Cylinders Podcast. Powered by Summit Racing. Your host for today is Summit Racing's Al Noe with special guest John Hotchkiss, President and CEO of Hotchkiss Sports Suspension. Here we go. Welcome, Summit Racing fans. Today, we are joined by John Hotchkiss, who is the CEO, president, owner, founder of Hotchkiss Sports Suspension. John, it's great to see you. How have you been? Well, Al, thank you so much for for having me, and things are good. Excellent. Sounds great. I want to talk a little bit about your background. How would you get started? When did it start? Well, Al, that's a great question. And amazingly, I've ever since I was first memory were loving cars and loving anything to do with speed, how things work, making cars and so on. And it was kind of ironic because my mother was an English major, father, uh, finance guy. My father didn't get into cars until later in life, and, and he got in in a really big way. And we did a lot together. But growing up, there was nothing about cars in our house at all, except that I just had this burning passion. And my parents said, what in the world? You know, where did he come from? But anyway, we'd go, we'd, I'd drag them to races because I couldn't drive, obviously. And I said, let's go to Orange County International Raceway. Let's go to Riverside. Let's do some car things. Lo and behold, my father got into racing and, and away we went. The cars we made were kind of derivative of soapbox derby cars. We'd ride our bicycles to Sears and buy wheels and axles to make these cars more fun. And they were made out of two by fours, whatever we could find. So that was the first thing. And then bicycles and motorcycles. Funny enough, Pasadena is a suburb of of Los Angeles. But back then, there were still uh, vacant lots and there was some space. So we would uh, set up and ride our dirt bikes and uh, vacant lot behind our house. And all the neighbors would do that as well. And so there was always something car. And then the first thing I raced was a motorcycle. It was a RD350 Yamaha and the local AFM races, which we raced at Riverside and Sonoma, Sears Point, Ontario. That was 1979. And then I contacted Skip Barber Racing and did their Formula Ford series. It was based in Lime Rock. So I went back and forth to Lime Rock and Sebring and Watkins Glen and Mid-Ohio and did that for a few years. And it was just wonderful. I even ended up working for Skip on the cars because I quickly learned how to change gears in the in the transmissions and do the car maintenance. And so it was Formula Ford to start with. What uh, what are some of your current rides and uh, what, what have you raced over the years? Oh my gosh, we're going <laughs> to, this might take some time, <laughs> but uh, no, so lucky to I don't like any anybody who wants to race. I, I would drive anything I could, and road racing was was my thing. And so uh, raced, um, uh, worked and prepared a Porsche 924, which is a D production car in SCCA. Uh, Porsche 914 of uh, Chevy Camaro. Raced a few races in the Trans Am in 1982 in a tube frame Pontiac that was pretty wild for the time and. And uh, Porsche 924 uh, GTR, raced that at Daytona. And I was always going to the races, hanging around to see somehow get a ride. And that worked pretty well. And then got some sponsorship and a way in and and raced. The biggest thing was British Formula 3. And a race in that in 1987 and 88. And the drivers at that time were unbelievable. It was Martin Donnelly and Johnny Herbert and Burton Gasho and Philip Favre and Roland Ratzenberger, and I mean, the list goes on and on of the who's who of, of Eddie Irvine, of the who's who of, of motorsports. So I lived in England for two and a half years, 
raced and worked on the cars and, and raced there, met some great people that I'm still extremely good friends with. And in the meantime, raced, uh, did five Daytona 24 hours, finished fifth overall in 1987 in Porsche 962. Uh, helped my father put to his race team together in 1985. And they, they started with um, uh, Creepy Crawly March 83G Porsche-powered GTB car and rented that from Rick Hendrick back, gosh, years and years ago and graduated to, uh, my father bought a, a 962 he, he, um, he did five Le Mans 24 hours, and he and his partner were both in the financial world. So they worked as hard as they could to support their racing habit. And <laughs> That sounds familiar, right, John? <laughs> absolutely. And, I mean, they raced in sporadic races, uh, in IMSA, 20, always endurance races from probably 1970 on. And, uh, I mean, so many Daytona 24 hours, can't even remember them all, but we uh, – the first one was 1980 for me in a Porsche 911 or an RSR Carrera. The car was great, but then we had a third gear issue. And I remember coming off the tri-oval and in the at night. And, and uh, because the chips were in the transmission, it, they would get uh, uh, into the shift forks and so on. So the, all of a sudden, the trans- transmission would shift into neutral. Well, coming off the banks at 160 or whatever it was with 935s and all these super quick cars behind it. Being going into turn one in neutral was just the scariest thing ever. But we did okay, and did did more races in that car, and then uh, again did uh, five twenty four twenty four hours in a nine sixty two, finishing fifth in nineteen eighty seven, and finished fourth at Sebring overall in in nineteen ninety, and and Le Mans did Le Mans twenty four hours in eighty nine in a Spice, which was an English prototype car with a hard engine, which was a derivative of the Formula One engine at the time. Four-cylinder, single turbo, went 218 miles an hour, uh, weighed just so light it was like a feather. And uh, that was before they had the chicane, so it was, it was really the four-mile-long Molson straight. Absolutely incredible. Amazing, amazing time. And so uh, more cars. Uh, we, we've built a number of race cars here at the shop, and, and I can go on and on about the great driving experiences. So currently, I know that your company just recently introduced some uh, C3 Corvette products, and I believe you've got a Corvette that you built around that. Can you talk about that a bit? I know you got some pretty cool, uh, I'll call them the company cars. Absolutely, we do it. And, uh, but the, the thing, you know, people say, well, all this racing, how did you get into the, the automotive aftermarket? And, and uh, if you think about it, the, the one thing, if you put a microphone in front of a race car driver, whether it's NASCAR or road racing, or even drag racing, because if, if the car doesn't hook up and smokes the tires, then the run is not, you know, it's not successful. And most people have a lot of power, but the handling is the big thing. And, and I was always fascinated how the how you have four tire contact patches, how that makes grip, and what, how to get more grip, how to get better handling balance. And that translates directly from racing. Because you certainly can't win in a race car if it doesn't handle well. There's so much more driving now. There's autocross, track days, and so on. And so everybody knows when their car is working really well, it's it's not effortless, but it's much less effort than if the car is understeering or oversteering, or you know you're putting all, a lot of steering input in it, and it doesn't. It's just not doing what you want. And if but when your car talks to you, if you can feel the front and the rear end, you can feel what the tires are doing. 
then it just becomes incredible. And then you get that big smile. Yeah, John, you've always, um, your company, so let's talk a little bit before you started Hotchkiss, you had a background and worked for, I would say, one of the suspension greats in our industry, Gulfstrand, right? Well, and, and, uh, and we'll get back to the C3 and all the new products because we have some really cool stuff. But that was a, it was amazing time. And, and it was a time after I'd lived in England for two and a half years. I was, at that point, it, it, racing is all about sponsorship. Can you get more sponsorship? Can you get more drives and so on? So I, I arrived back from England with really nothing to race for the following season, 89. But I remember reading about Dick Gullstrand in Culver City, California. And where he was, it was called Thunder Alley. It was Traco, the legendary engine builder. Traco was next door. Shop next to that that, that originally was Shelby and, and Lance Reventlow. They, they had his cars there. So the L.A. area was just the place for racing, and whether it was Gurney, Don Spencer, and you can go on and on about the grace of the time. So to be in this Thunder Alley, it was, it was tight, it was small, and it was today's race shop's I mean, it wouldn't even compare, but it had the most incredible aura of, of speed and, and just design and, and ingenuity. And working for Dick, consummate engineer, racer forever. He raced for Penske. He was great friends with Zora Duntoff. He didn't have a director of marketing. I wasn't a marketing major, but I had enough graphic design and uh, product design. He said, well, I, I've never hired anybody like you. Let's see what happens. So uh, he gave me his Rolodex, and back then, remember, there was a big round thing with all the cards in it, and oh my gosh, I met Herb Fischel, Art Gould, I mean, you name it, the the people that were part of all of that, and, and to be with Dick, and we went to SEMA in 89, all the years he'd been in business, he'd never been to the SEMA show, he was really nervous to make a lot of product, and he always said, well, I don't want to fill the pipeline, and so I designed the packaging and catalog for him in 1990. We went to the SEMA show, and I think somebody from Summit came up to him and said, oh, I never knew you had all these parts, and hey, we'd like to buy them. And he turned sheet white and said, oh, my God, I can't do that. He just loved, he loved his, uh, his shop, and he loved innovating, but making the commitment to make a lot of product was not what he wanted to do. Yeah, it's a it's a big commitment, John, and it's a huge change. You know, making one of anything, it's certainly not easy, but maybe certain people have a lot more fun doing the prototyping, doing the development. But running a production shop is challenging. And let's talk about Hotchkiss because you've went from from that environment where it probably was a lot more one-off custom suspension, custom race car setup. Let's talk about how, how did you migrate into that and how did you how did you found Hotchkiss and when did it all happen? Well, in, in uh, really 1990, end of 91 or 92, uh, I left Dick Gullstrand because there just wasn't an opportunity to move forward. But what I, what I learned from being at Gullstrand, and this was before social media, cell phones were brand new, the people on the phone, the customers, were incredible. There was no social media. There was no texting. If you go back into in 1989, 1990, if you needed to make a phone call during the day, you were probably at work on work phone or at a gas station. But they'd call and they'd talk and talk. Customers would talk and talk about their cars. And, and I kind of joked to the guys there. I said, we're like the car psychiatrists. You know, they'll talk about, uh, obviously, we talk, we're talking the suspension at Gulfstream, but they talk about 
headers and primary lengths and carburetors and CFM and jets and rear ends and paint and on and on because they were so excited to talk to somebody uh, about what they were doing. And that that passion, that excitement to this day is is what I think keeps all of us really excited about the industry because the things we make make people so happy because they love their cars and they want whatever car they have. And especially if it's a classic muscle car, they want it to drive more like a new car and are many times better. And they want to have fun with something that's emotional. And, and that's really what I took away from Goldstrand. I started with one product, some, uh, actually a G-body suspension, rear suspension. I remember befriending the Grand National Club at the time. And I went out to Las Vegas to a drag race. I brought my products, but I didn't have a table. It didn't really matter. I found a trash can and some wood, and I, and I put it on top of that. And we just talk, I talked to people. And, and we could make Grand Nationals hook up better because guys were getting a lot of horsepower, certainly back then. Kenny Duttweiler was the big name and still a great guy in, in the V6 world. So started with G-Body, and then just the customers just kept asking for more. Then uh, Chevelle, A-Body, then, gosh, we did Caprice. We did really 94, obviously, 94, 96 Impala, Impala SS. We worked a lot with Chevrolet, and we stretched the wheelbase that that half inch to make the rear tire centered in the rear wheel well. And we did trucks and 88 to 98 trucks. And we built, gosh, some really awesome vehicles. We, we received the first, one of the first on the West Coast, 93 Camaro, and we made suspension for that. And, and those were actually, a lot of those were Jim Perkins and uh, Chuck Lombardo and lots of contacts I'd made at Gulfstrand. And they said, sure, because... Back then, suspension wasn't a big deal. Race part, engine parts were big, but, but nobody had really pushed on the suspension side. So that was the evolution of this company, just following the customer's leads. So one of our customers, uh, Dragon Drive, had a, a comment. I think it's pretty funny because anybody who's driven one of these at speed will relate to this. Did you leave the G-Body shuffle in the design of your parts for the Grand National? What we did uh, really worked on the stability of the suspension, making sure that that rear axle was as straight in the car uh, where we could and uh, make sure that there were no binding in the suspension. But really what helped those cars uh, were shock absorber design. You know, shocks, when it first started, Bilstein were the things, and Bilstein's an awesome brand. But then we started using Fox, and, and that was, we can control the damping, control the spring energy much better. So shock evolution, also front suspension design, and then also sway bar balance, making sure that when you turn into a corner, push or give it a throttle and so on, the car doesn't do um, what you don't want it to do. So to answer your question, we can make this G-Body. I drive my Grand National all the time. I love it. And uh, I would say it's our most fun car to cruise. And so now a G-Body kit is sensational if you use everything that's designed to work together. Yeah. And that's one of the keys, John. I think that I really believe that you were one of the pioneers that started to look at that from a holistic approach and say, you know, if I have customers buying control arms, but they're using brand XYZ shock and XYZ spring and this whole combination, but they have four manufacturers parts they're trying to use in the suspension. And then they call you and say, hey, it's not really working the way that I want. Uh, absolutely. Because in racing, we we worked so hard on on shock development versus spring rate. Uh, sway bar uh, rates and so on to get roll couples right and and to really get the cars to handle well and 
and now regular streetcars handle so well and people are used to really nice uh, informative feedback as you're driving anything, whether it's a, a minivan, a truck, car, you name it. So the want for really good feedback, good suspension is is there more than ever. I said, yeah, absolutely, because we get calls and said, well, I use somebody's springs and somebody else's shocks and somebody's sway bars or your sway bars. I don't really like it. Well, that all has to work together because the spring has to be enough rate to keep the car from bottoming out. And then the shock has to have enough damping force to dampen that spring energy. But you don't want to have, uh, let's say you have a certain spring rate where you could have a, a shock with a lot of compression damping. Well, then it's it's too high a rate and you're feeling every little ripple in the road and it, it doesn't have the right travel. And to summarize, everything needs to work together. And that's what we do. We're constantly driving. We're going on cruises. We're, we're doing whatever we can. And, and we're still to this day, we're still improving the shocks, uh, improving. We just improved our upper A-arms for Camaro, first-gen Camaro. We're always saying, okay, how can we make it better? And how can we improve the car so the customers have a better driving experience? I think it somewhat ties in with what you just talked about with making sure everything's matched together. But how do you know when the sway bar is too big? It's almost a very similar question of, well, which, which cam's the right cam or what's the best cam or how do you know the cam's too big? Well, it, it depends. It, it, it really does. And it's, we've had fun because we're one of the only companies that bends their own sway bars. So we tried so many different combinations and we bend one and a half inch by 250 wall sway bars. That, it's, a, it's a major bar. And we've bent um, for front wheel drive cars. We've bent mammoth bars for the rear because a front wheel drive car obviously does all the, the steering, the braking and acceleration through the front tires. So what do you want a front drive car? You want it to be able to rotate. And so that a front drive pulls out of the corner. So you need to get the rear to have a lot of spring rate, a lot of sway bar. That combination obviously wouldn't work for a rear drive. But to answer your question, you have we, we go for the biggest sway bar we can. And it's all about feel uh, and, and some math. But it's at the end of the day, you, the sway bar can't overpower the suspension. So if you're on a crown of a road or if they're ripples or, or if the concrete has been uh, with saw lines so for rain and so on. You want to make sure the sway bar doesn't overpower and control the, the suspension, that it, it does what it should do. You shouldn't feel a sway bar unless you're turning that with the, the spring rate. And it's so funny. I remember there was Dick Goldstrand and Herb Adams. They, I don't think they talked very often, but they had polar opposites to what they were thinking. One was stiff sway bars, soft springs. The other is uh, soft springs, stiffer sway bars. And I mean, that's you can go on, on YouTube and everywhere and still people are talking about that. And, and a race car is obviously different than a street car. But, but as shocks, uh, again, goes back to the shock side, as they get more sophisticated, you can do more tuning with that. And so then you don't have to overpower or mask handling issues with too large a sway bar. John, you mentioned uh, shocks, and I think it's I think it's interesting, and I'd love to hear your your insight and your history with the advancements in shocks over the last you know 20, 20 plus years. From your perspective, how far has it come, and where do you see it going? Well, it's uh, it's it's amazing where it where it's come, and and uh, because of racing. Uh, that technology has really flowed heavily to streetcars. 
whether it's Grand National, it's it's Cuda Challenger, Charger, Mustang, as long as the aftermarket keeps pushing, keeps wanting better results, we can make these cars and trucks better and better all the time. That is a pretty routine thing that Hotchkiss will do. You'll take, you mentioned the early F-body control arm that you redesigned it to make the product better. I, I think it's safe to say you probably don't have many products that are identical to what they were 10 or 15 years ago. We, we really don't. It, it is true. And I, I save a lot of the originals in a box. I'm looking up in the R&D shop and I can see a trailing arm poking out. That's the original 1302 that we did for Chevelle's. Even that, I mean, that simple connector from, you know, the axle to the chassis, we've, we've redesigned that. We put swivel bushings in it. It's lighter. It's actually a little bit stronger, too. But it's true because we're, from me down, we're passionate car guys, and we just never satisfied. We want the parts that we want to drive, and those are what we'd like to sell. When I started, it was all about, okay, what is it made out of, and how thick is the material? And customers really want to know, tell me about the product. Well, now they want to know about the product, but more importantly, they want to know the driving experience. What's it going to do for me? How is it going to feel when I'm out in my favorite road? I'm, I'm on the Blue Ridge Parkway or I'm on Pacific Coast Highway. And what's my experience? And then also, what's the safety factor? Meaning, if I let my teenagers drive my classic car, my Challenger, Camaro, and so on, how is it going to be for them? Are they going to, are they going to understand what the car does. Because if you give them a 68 Chevelle, it's stock on stock tires, stock brakes. It's a handful. And it's a real responsibility to drive something like that because it's so different than any road car today. So customers want experience. They want to know about safety. And they want to make sure that, A, people riding with them, that they're going to be safe. And people driving the car are going to be able to handle it and, and enjoy it. In addition to shock technology, what do you see from the tire side and how does that impact your business? Does it have a marked effect on, on you and the questions and the tech that you have to do to support it? Or if you're running a good 200 treadwear tire, is it a pretty consistent thing and it's not another massive variable that you have to deal with? Well, here's what we're dealing with now because we're really... Our, our suspension is bolt-on. So we say, bolt this on in your driveway, in your garage. So we have to deal with somebody with, and want to deal with somebody with a car that has even 15-inch steel wheels with BFGTAs, all the way to somebody with 20 or 22s with Kumos or BFGs or Falcons. So we have to really work on getting a package that'll work with both. Now, Using BFGTAs and a softer original type radial, our spring rate and our shock damping puts a lot of pressure on those tires, probably more than optimum, but the car handles great and then really comes alive with a, with a shorter sidewall, more performance tire. So tires have absolutely come a long way. They're brands to make absolutely incredible 200 treadwear tires that are, that are great for autocross, track days, and so on. But what I see happening with the supply chain issues, this year and last year have been harder to get tires, probably harder than ever before. I think it's a little easier now. The performance car is such a smaller market. We have to still keep waving the flag. Hey, we're here. Keep, yeah. deve you know, keep developing <laughs> great tires. tires. Yeah. Exactly. Very, very true. No, the tires, are, uh, tires like shocks have made such an incredible difference with what cars will do. I mean, we're running, and I know you are too in your cars, you know, running tires that were on, you know, should be on supercars and so on. And with excellent grip and incredible feedback and 
amazing to drive. I remember, John, when the uh, the C4 Corvette first came out, Chevrolet back then did a fantastic job with the marketing of that car. And it was so different and so new. But remember the whole slogan behind that car, 1G on street tires. And everybody went crazy because it had Goodyear Gatorbacks on it, aluminum control arms. I mean, it was so cool. And you think today and you go, yeah, 1G on street tires, that's that's my daily driver now, you know? You can absolutely take an early muscle car with the right combination of suspension products and a good tire, achieve that same level of performance. Oh, 100%. And I remember we are at Willow Springs on the skid pad. It's a 200-foot uh, uh, skid pad. And uh, this years ago, and we built a uh, Chevy C10 truck. It was an amazing truck. And, and we worked on the weights and we got it so that it would handle so beautifully. And it was great on the big willow and on the streets of willow. But we brought it over the skid pad and, we, and immediately we got over 1G with a Chevy C10. I just remember just standing back and everybody clapping going, wow, because you're right. That's a supercar number. And, and that was a big advertising point so many years ago and to have a <laughs> a truck that was you know this was a farm truck in its earlier life having that thing at supercar level was super cool if you don't mind i'd like to talk it's a little little personal and i don't want to go somewhere you don't want to go but you've had a, a personal challenge in your life too and i and i really believe this topic affects a lot of people in a lot of different ways so if you could talk a little bit about that what's the biggest challenge you've had in your life well, um, this this is it. At 49 years old, 49 and a half, I, I was in great shape. And when I'm not driving a car, I was at the beach surfing and, and windsurfing, uh, regular surfing, and now stand-up paddleboarding. Those are my thing. I just love being on the lake here, being in the ocean and surfing waves. And, and so all of a sudden in the summer of 2008, my toes started to go numb on my right foot. And I had a little bump on my ankle. And, and this really is a story of everybody. If you have something that, that you're kind of nervous about, it's something irregular, get it checked. And so uh, doctors would poke at this little bump and had no idea. And by the SEMA show that year, I could hardly walk. And uh, thanks to ibuprofen and just SEMA adrenaline, I was able to walk around the show and, and be there. A week after that, I was diagnosed with sarcoma, synovial sarcoma in my ankle, which is a really a tumor of the tissue. It had wound around uh, the parts of my foot. I went to all the best hospitals in, in L.A. area, and, and some said uh, we could keep your foot, but it won't work very well. The basic, the, the main thing they said, if you're going to survive, you're going to have to have a below-knee amputation. And... I mean, obviously, that was super shocking. I wouldn't have minded if it was on my left because I could still heal and toe and everything with my right foot, but it was my throttle foot. But, hey, you know, I just uh, shocking news. I went to UCLA in Santa Monica, which is a sarcoma center, and at Christmas of uh, 2008, I had my leg amputated and foot amputated, and, and then it took a whole year to really come back. I had a ton of chemo and I do in-hospital chemo in Santa Monica, and the diagnosis for the sarcoma is not great, and the survival rate is not great. So it was it was a huge shock, but I battled through it, and I had greats of family and friends support, and, and a lot of luck, and 
after a year a year of chemo and lots of in-hospital stays, and I got to the point where I didn't even, I was so unrecognizable, my friends barely could recognize me because I was so swollen from all the steroids and, and treatments. And But slowly things got better and better. And uh, I remember the first time I got back into, actually it was the Challenger. It was the first, my first drive on a, a manual. And I mean, I'm a driver like so many of you, you know, you just, you get in, you know how to drive. Well, I'd driven an automatic car uh, before that, but but because I couldn't feel my right foot, I didn't know where it was. Was it on the throttle? Was it on the brake? Was it in between? Really being truly scared that I, I couldn't stop because I didn't know where that that foot was. I'd also had to learn to walk because, you know, when you get a prosthetic, it's completely different than, than normal walking, but but it all came together. I persisted and learned to walk. I learned to drive manual again. And, and now I kind of, um, I can get in anything and drive it. And I just love driving so much. And I was so thrilled to survive this whole thing that, uh, I know I do a lot of left foot braking and, and, uh, kind of switch my feet around, uh, in a more some unconventional way, but Hey, we're, we're out driving and, and surviving. That's awesome, John. It's, it's so great to hear that story. And I appreciate you sharing that with everybody because, Cancer is definitely something that impacts everybody. You know, everyone knows someone or has someone in their life that it impacts. And uh, it's great to see you thriving and it's great to see you doing so well. Speaking of thriving, so what new products does Hotchkiss have? You've been you've been very busy. You got the company moved and everything's situated now. And I know you've had a lot of new products you've been working on. We, we have. And, and uh, we're really excited to we uh, the move to North Carolina allowed us to buy more equipment. And so we have four, actually five uh, welding stations with MIG and TIG welders. And, but the cool thing, we have a robotic welder, and, and that's been, been making our parts even better. But the addition of Haas CNC machines has allowed us to machine all of our products in-house and better. And then um, we have new, uh, new hood pins, uh, improvement of the ones we've had. We have uh, many more billet sway bar brackets and i'll just tell you the small stuff before the big stuff shift knobs and we'll have more and more uh billet accessories but the cool thing is that we've uh not only with the improvements to the other camaro and other parts uh we're doing c3 corvettes and i've always wanted to do that and but we timing which just wasn't right but i was talking to i'm talking to bob riley and he years and years ago developed a uh, package for c3s and as the brilliant engineer he is, he designed 20, made 25 and got bored with it and said, okay, that's it. I'm on to the next thing. So we've talked about his ideas and then freshened that up and, and worked with our own engineering team and did fully scan the C3 Corvette. And uh, now our, our solution is a full link suspension, really five links, two lower, two going forward, and then using the axle as well. So we take the leaf spring off the rear. We put a uh, adjustable sway bar on the rear, our link rear suspension front. We revise the geometry uh, A-arms. Uh, we're working with um, typical uh, steering gears and also rack and pinion. And so we're just starting the testing of these products. We had them at SEMA, did a little driving, and now we're full speed ahead and to offer this kit in the spring. But I love Corvettes and they really don't handle very well, but taking a whole fresh approach to the suspension is is really fun. And we're doing our own uprights. We're doing our own uh, 
stub axle. It's been just a blast to do this. So, John, what is next for Hotchkiss? What's uh, where do you see the company going, and where do you see the future? Well, we it's it's it, pretty interesting. We see we see the future. I heard in uh, somebody say the other day, our future is backwards. And, and so, but that's a good thing because I think there are more and more uh, opportunities to make uh, other cars handle. Give you an uh, example, we were selling a lot of 65 to 66 Galaxy suspension products. Huh. And who knew uh, a big, huge Galaxy would be such a popular car? Well, we worked with Jay Leno. Jay called me and said, hey, I need my Galaxy to handle like a, a, a new Camaro. Because of my father had one that I, this is a great story. He, his father was a salesman and was, would drive this, wanted a car, big car to drive. And, and Jay t- checked off. I think it was no radio, no, no muffler, no sound deadening. And, and so he wanted to duplicate a car that is, replicate a car his father, his father had. So he got Roush seven liter engine in it and T56 transmission and Curry rear end and all the great mods and we did the suspension so he really obviously jay can do that but he he really awakened a galaxy crowd that is super passionate about their cars so i I think whether it's 88 to 98 trucks that are chevy trucks that are there older fords third generation camaros we're working on fox new fox body parts right now and it's interesting these we had full kits for Fox Body and third generation Camaros back when they were popular. And as you know, at Summit, then they really took a really a nosedive in popularity. They just weren't what they were. And now they're roaring back. In Texas, we saw that, that third generation F Body row of cars, and there were a lot of them. Uh, so I think that as, as maybe we, and when I say this, people are going to say, ah, you can't say that. But I do, I do think that there'll be a lot of people in cities that will be driving electric cars, not cars, just products. You know, you get in it, you push the button, and you drive to work or you drive wherever you do. But in your garage, I think and I hope will be this great car that you remember, whether it's a, I mean, it could be a Pinto or a Gremlin or a, a Mustang, whatever it is. And I think the, the, our platform will broaden because more people will like even more uh, cars. Some of the cars that are popular now were certainly not popular 10, 15 years ago at all. See, why would somebody modify that? So I think there'll be more of those, but I, I really believe there'll be, whether it's BMW, Porsche, domestic, you know, Ford, Chevy, Mopar, they'll have these cool cars in their garage so that they can drive every once in a while because the cars you drive every day are just not, they're not, you're not passionate about it. It's really yeah. just something. It'll be just utilitarian, right, John? Exactly. You know, getting the appliance and go from A to B where I think our industry is really built around an awesome driving experience and having something that you love and that brings back memories that you have from, uh, from maybe owning it many years ago or maybe just having a vehicle that's like what you wanted back in the day, you know? Absolutely. So, Al, I was driving a 71 Camaro, and it's cool. It's it's great Forge Line wheels on it, and, and uh, it's a BMW Calypso Red, so it's a really awesome color. And I was driving, and these, these guys were in a G-Wagon, you know, modified G-Wagon, really expensive Mercedes SUV. And anyway, they slowed down, and they, they all got out. It looked like a bunch of clown car because there were so many guys in it, but they were sticking their head out, and they were – honking and putting their thumbs up and then one guy yelled what is it and 
So here were these guys in this, you know, $250,000 plus G wagon asking what the Camaro was, but they were just entranced by it. So I think that we're, as long as we as an industry really keep the excitement going and build great cars and so on, I think we can get people to have cars like the 71 Camaro in their garage that they, they have no past history. They don't know, but, but it's such a cool art piece. It's such a cool statement that they'll, they'll buy it. John, thank you so much for joining us today. Your history is amazing. Uh, you've built an amazing company and an amazing brand. And I uh, just can't thank you enough for your time today. So, John, thank you so much. Thank you. Go out and enjoy your hot rods. This has been the On All Cylinders podcast. Powered by Summit Racing. Check out new episodes coming soon at onallcylinders.com. Onallcylinders.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.